Hello and welcome to HR Unplugged, episode 35, how to create a more inclusive and welcoming workplace. In today's podcast, we'll be talking about how diversity, equity, and inclusion are critical pieces to any business's strategy and culture. But building a more inclusive and welcoming workplace can be a challenge. Join us as special guest Lauren Leader, co-founder at CEO at All In Together, Anita Grantham and Vanessa Brulot uncover the latest research and ideas on how to create a workplace where everyone feels seen, heard, and represented. In this episode, you'll learn how to improve hiring and promotion practices, establish DEI training programs, and create more inclusive policies and procedures. Thank you for tuning in today. Today's episode is brought to you by Bamboo HR, the complete HR software. Simplify HR with award-winning solutions for everything from hire to retire with Bamboo HR. Hi friends, Bamboo HR here. People ask me all the time, why is it so easy to switch to Bamboo HR? And I tell them the same thing every time. Aw, thank you, you're too kind. Now it's my turn to compliment you. (laughs) But I also say it's easy switching to Bamboo HR because I'm so user-friendly. Employees, managers, admins, they all love me. See for yourself now and start a free trial at BambooHR.com. That's BambooHR.com. Well, we have an exciting guest today uh, for our episode of HR Unplugged. I'd like to welcome Lauren Leader, co-founder and CEO of All In Together. Welcome, Lauren. We are so excited you're here today and can't wait to hear your insights on this topic. Tell us a little bit about yourself so the audience can get to know you. Well, thank you. I'm thrilled to be with you. And um from very cold New York. It's like snowing out, starting to like flurry and it's freezing out. So I'm happy to be inside cozy and talking to all of you. Um, I've been probably most of my career working in and around diversity and inclusion in lots of different spaces and places. So I started my career as an HR professional, just like all of you. And I started at investment banks and then some boutique firms and startups and management consulting. And really it was around my early 30s, um, I was in a worked in a financial services firm, which I will not name. And I was sitting in a meeting with a bunch of dudes, and I got kicked under the table by one of my male colleagues and told to stop talking. And it was kind of a moment for me. And it was one of many that I had seen, and one of the first times that I really felt that, you know, being a woman was really going to be complicated and challenging. And so in the financial crisis, I started, well, I lost my job on Wall Street, like a lot of people. And I started working on diversity and inclusion issues and helped a lot of companies all, of all sizes and shapes and you know kinds from, I used to say everything from Google to Goldman, um, build and create diversity and inclusion. And I did lots of research around what the drivers were of you know the challenges for women's careers and LGBTQ folks and people of color. And, and then I started working on that also as an advisor. And for the last 10 years, I've done kind of two things. I've worked on diversity in business with people like Anita, who is my client. Um, and then I also work on diversity in politics. And the politics side is what All In Together is. But I still spend about 50% of my time working with lots of growth stage companies on their diversity efforts and on culture and climate, and but very much still focused on DNI. So... Also, I am a mother. I have three African-American 
adopted children. My oldest daughter um, is a refugee. She actually became a citizen about 30 minutes ago, which is why I got onto this podcast, like literally with like a minute to spare because I was like sprinting up Broadway because her swearing in was like really slow. And then we had to take a lot of pictures. Anyway, it was a big moment. But um, so I have a very diverse family. Um, I'm Jewish. My kids are black. My daughter, one of my kids is a refugee, was from the Congo. She's Christian, whatever. We got the whole, my ex is French. We got everything in my family. So I live it. I work it. I breathe it the whole nine. I got to say, it's I've had the chance to work with Lauren for a long time, and she's a delight. Like, she not only does this work, but she lives it, which is really unique and awesome. And sharing her experiences is such a gift. And the other thing I love about Lauren is that there's no judgment in it. Like, she'll meet you right where you are and walk you through. And um, I learned so much, Lauren, from you. And so I'm just so grateful for the role you've played for me in my own leadership journey around diversity and inclusion and um, excited that all of everybody in our HR Unplugged community can get to learn and experience you as well. Well, let's uh, let's dive into to our discussion for today. Now that we've looked at those poll results is uh, our first section is about the challenges many companies face with diversity, equity and inclusion. Everyone wants to be diverse and inclusive, but getting these things right can be difficult. What do you see as the top challenges for most businesses? Anita? Well, you know, no, that I spend a lot of time mentoring people in the community and I get a lot of calls on this. And the biggest question is that they don't have leadership buy-in because they don't know where to start. I got a call from a small company and they said they got feedback that they were, you know, not treating women well. And so they wanted to start right there isolated issue. And while that's important, I encourage them to say, is that what you want to be known for? Is that is that what you want out of this whole initiative that you're going to spend time on? So it can be really paralyzing. And Lauren's seen me in this space. I've been a person where you have all these complaints and you feel, I feel paralyzed because I haven't known what I'm going to prioritize or how I'm going to go about it. And so I think it's just interesting to say, like, what do you stand for around this topic? What is the broader piece and how does it tie into your mission? I really think that, so I think there's a couple of things going on. One is that I do think, look, like not everybody believes that diversity is important. And we've said that for years, but that's like really true right now. And when you look at what's going on across the United States, particularly, I mean, there is very serious and active backlash against diversity inclusion efforts. And there is a pretty strong political movement in this country which says that diversity and inclusion is reverse discrimination. I mean, it's part of what led to the end of the affirmative of affirmative action in the Supreme Court and a lot of the lawsuits, some of which have been thrown out, by the way. But, you know, there was a lawsuit recently against a venture capital firm that just their their investing strategy is to invest in businesses of color. Why? Because other firms that have just more generalized approaches weren't doing it. And businesses of color were not getting the investment. Well, someone sued them um, and claimed that it was discriminatory for them to be making that positive effort to try to support you know, and invest in in black businesses. The suit was thrown out and so far it's continuing. But like the point is, there are definitely people who don't believe in this and don't think it matters. And you can't like pretend that doesn't exist. So that's number one. But number two around middle management is that I do also think like even with folks that like will say, okay, I get it. Like we need diversity in the organization. You know, middle management has it the hardest, right? They're squeezed on time. They're pressured. They have the most to deliver. They have the most demands on their plates in many ways. 
And they don't always have the time to do what it takes to prioritize diversity. And I think that that's like something to understand and focus on because it's not just that they don't care. It's that they either don't know how, they don't have the support they need, or it's not, um, or it's really difficult given other challenges that they have in their business. And so it's hard to prioritize. I really see this on the recruiting front. You know, I hear this all the time from DNI recruiters, but they'll say like, I just feel like the managers don't care that much. But if you talk to the managers, they'll say, well, no, I do care, but like, I can't wait nine months to fill this job. If the recruiters can't find candidates that are diverse around, like, how long am I supposed to wait? So, you know, and Eleanor said this too, like middle management doesn't get enough support on this. Like, I, I actually really believe that. I think a lot of them would do more if they had the tools and the resources. I just have a question on this, Lauren, because I think it's so important. Are there tools that you have top of mind that we could give middle managers that would help? them prioritize this? Or are there things in all the companies that you've worked in that you've seen be effective? Because I feel like we struggle from that too right now. Well, I think there's a couple of things. So like on the recruiting, so it's always like this question of like, are we talking about recruiting diverse talent? Are we talking about keeping diverse talent? Are we talking about accelerating diverse talent, right? It's a lot of things. I think in the recruiting front, look, I really think it's critical, even in small organizations, if you're committed to finding diverse talent for roles that you know that it's going to be hard, you can never stop recruiting. In other words, it's too late by the time you have an open job. You really have to be thinking about that long term. And like, obviously, the most obvious one, and Anita, you lived this for so long, is engineering, right? We know that there are not enough women in engineering. We know that there are very few black engineers. So when you know that, you're going to have openings on your team. Like, I think it's incredibly important that whoever's doing the recruiting, like, is thinking about that all the time and, like, always looking for diverse talent, has a pool of people outside the firm that they're in touch with so that when you do have an opening... And also, frankly, making some proactive hires when you can, because those people are just so hard to come by. The second thing is like knowing that it's that hard to come by. We have got to support managers better on attrition and helping them get the tools and the supports to make sure that they're not letting their people walk out the door. Like every manager should know like what the aspirations are of their people, whether they're happy, how well they're doing. And that's in any size organization. I don't care if it's three people or 300 people. Managers... They, we have to start giving managers the tools to see the part of their job. It's not just executing. It's also making sure that their people are successful and happy and, and are interested in staying. And if they're at risk, they should know that too. Great tips. Great actual tips. Thank you, Lauren. <laughs> well, Lauren, I know that you have some, some really good points on some other top challenges companies face with uh, DEI. Do you want to talk about those? There's no one right answer here, okay? I mean, over the last number of years, look, early, I'm, I'm not going to say how old I am, but I'm not 20. Let's just put 29. it out. 29. 29. Don't I look so? I know. I, it's amazing. Um, so, look, when I started my career, companies never talked about anything outside of the company walls. It's not a thing that anyone did. And I think part of what's happening over the last, what's happened over the last decade is as companies have, well, two things. One is like ESG and the commitment to social good that many companies have decided is important to them. And it should be, it's good for business, it's good for the planet, it's, it's good for society. But I also think that there's been real generational shifts, right? And it started with Gen Y in the workplace. The Gen Y wanted companies to, you know, not just do well, but do good. And we're really pushing leaders to, you know, be role models, take a stand. 
And then, you know, over the last decade, I think also like politics has become more of a central issue. And it in some ways really came to a head after George Floyd that, you know, the it was such a central issue in the American discourse and really around the world that, you, you know, every there was this like pile on like everybody had to say something. Everyone had to do something. And, and I think that was right. But what's happened since is that now like every major issue you know, there's a lot of pressure on leaders to say something, you know, and I think we saw this after Dobbs, you know, where, you know, a lot of women felt very strongly that their employers should say something about, you know, whether the, what their healthcare plans would do and, you know, where they were on women's health. And then, you know, certainly affirmative action. And then now, obviously, as we're dealing with what's happening in the Middle East and how incredibly, you know, scary and difficult it is for people. The challenge is, I think that, you know, Many leaders are just not equipped to do this well. And this is not, this is like very uncharted territory. And I think we've seen like for every statement that a company has made on a political issue, there will inevitably be backlash. People don't all agree. And I think the mistake that many leaders are making is thinking that they have to avoid the backlash or that they have to make some kind of really benign statement that doesn't, it doesn't piss off anybody. And that's actually impossible so, you know, I do think that companies who've made very clear commitments to a set of values, you know, are always well served by reinforcing those values and reinforcing those values clearly. And companies who are whose businesses are affected by issues that are happening in the world. I mean, if you're an engineering firm that has engineers in Israel, like, I don't know how you don't talk about that. Like, you have your team members who are grieving. You know, it would be like it would be like. Having, a, you know, if you were a foreign subsidiary and you had employees in the United States, like, how could you not say something after 9-11? Like, that is what October 7th was, is, continues to be for Israelis. Like, the entire country is ground to a standstill since October 7th. And until those hostages are home, all of them, until the war is over, like, it will continue to be an issue. But my point is, is that I think that companies really do need to think, be really thoughtful about this. If it's not relevant to your business... If it's not directly relevant to your values as a company and it's not or it's not um, you're not being um, really there's not demand from your employees. Like, I think sometimes it's better to stay away. Um, and, you know, one issue that I think was a really smart one for a lot of companies to talk about was the affirmative action decision, because for companies, it has real implications for how they recruit. You know, almost every industry is affected if you hire college graduates you know, then the affirmative action decision was relevant to you. It, it remains relevant to you. And so there's a case to, to make there. But I think the point is, is that, you know, you're going to know anytime you take a, anyone takes a stand on anything and, and you can be 100 percent right on that issue. People will not always agree with you, you know, and I mean, you see this on LGBTQ issues, right? There's no massive backlash against LGBTQ uh, people in this country you know, anti-trans bills, et cetera, you know, people trashing tr Target because they had pride flags and, you know, they had rainbows on T-shirts. That doesn't make Target wrong for supporting LGBT rights, right? And if your company is committed to that and believes in inclusion, like you can't shy away from those things, but it's hard. And sometimes people will be mad about it. Lauren, this has been my question. I want to ask you, I, it's off script, but I've been dying to ask you, it's coming up for me. I don't understand around all these issues, how everybody preaches inclusion and then there's all this backlash. And that's where I really want the world to get to is that I have to agree with you to be inclusive of your beliefs. And that's what's so interesting to me. It seems so critical about this time is all the judgment. And what I'm really yeah. encouraging my team to do is as we 
as a, as a people team, our mission at Bamboo is to set people free to do great work. That means I don't have to agree with you on all topics, but I can be empathetic to you. I don't even have to share my point of view to empathize. And I want everybody to be included. And I think that's a scan at the top level of what I'd love to see. And I don't understand, especially on LinkedIn after Roe v. Wade, all these leaders that have preached inclusion in my space, a lot of my peers came out and said, if you feel one way or the other, don't respond to me, unfriend me. And I was like, what a waste. Like, what a sad yeah. uh, view of things. And and you've been a role model for this. And then you're out on one side of the issue. It's sad for me, Lauren. I don't understand. Yeah. Well, because people are afraid. And I think, you know, look, people are afraid to, it's hard to take a stand. You know, it just is. And, you know, I think, People are coming to terms with what that means. And look, you can be inclusive. And also, I think most companies, most institutions draw the line at hate. Yeah. You know, I don't have to be inclusive of somebody's hateful views, somebody who wants my destruction, who hates me. I'm, I don't yeah. have to be inclusive. And most companies draw the line on that. And, you know, if you're following some of what's happening on social media, you know, there are definitely people that are, you know, losing. Many companies have policies, and I think that they should, that your how what you say on social media and if you're spewing hate and you're associated with that institution, people know it. And right now, like some of the anti-Semitism online or even, you know, anti-Arab, anti-Muslim hate, like that's there's no place for that. And people are getting fired over those things. And, you know, just I think that if your company doesn't have a clear policy around people's social media use outside of the, you know, their social media use generally, everyone needs to have that. Every every organization should have a very clear policy about that. And every organization needs to have a really clear policy on respect. And I think that to me is actually a really clear line. Like respect is a non-negotiable, right? And you can have differing opinions, but the company stands for a set of values. You know, we believe in inclusion. We're committed to those things. And those are non-negotiables. And if you don't agree with it, it's not the right company for you. Like it's not, some of these things are like not a democracy. Like companies decide what they stand for and not everyone's going to agree with it. And if you don't agree with it, it might not be the right place for you to be working. What a great bright line, though. That's a great thing is we stand for respect and inclusion and we don't stand for hate. So if you do that personally or professionally, it's started for us. Like, I love that. What a great action item. Respect is a non-negotiable. And I see somebody <laughs> said that, like, re-edited that on the chat. Like, period. Like, that's it. That's, that's all you need. That's a pretty bright line. Yep. Print that on a T-shirt. Well, I like to to pivot and, and talk about why it's important to figure out what your DEI strategy is. Anita, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, so we've gone back to this a lot and I've shared pretty openly here on HR Unplugged. You know, our our mission is to set people free to do great work. And what that means is that we don't take a side on these issues unless it directly affects like small businesses. So, for instance, when like SVB um, had its, you know, when it when it died, I thought that would have been one that we would have taken a stand on for the sake of our customers. We had a number of our customers affected through um, the crash of that bank. 
And I think that's one when it directly affects your customers, like Lauren said, I think you should take a stand on it. But when it comes to women's rights and things like that, we believe in people being included in ever they feel about it. And and that ties back into our bamboo mission. I've often said, because we've had our sales reps come to us and they said, what do our customers tell us to do? And I said, well, what is their mission? You know, if they're a creator of control pills, then they probably want to stand, take a stand on these things, right? Like, so go back and have them go back to the mission, vision and values, like Lauren said, think about how it applies to the topic that you want to about. And I think the biggest art, and I've heard a lot of board members speak to this, is if you have a CEO or somebody that's very outspoken on your executive team that has a a personal affinity towards one of these topics that is not related to the mission, they need to be very careful. And I would encourage you as the head people or the head of comms to guide them on that. That when they're speaking on the behalf of the company, it needs to be mission aligned. If it's outside of that and it's personal and you're in a director of a company, I think you still have to be mission aligned. I think when we take these positions as executives and leaders, we give up our freedom of speech around how we see things personally. Um, and that's just an unpaid tax of the job that oftentimes leaders don't see. And I think it's important that we talk about that because a lot of new hires are looking for companies to have a strategy and a clear you need to talk about it in your employer brand. You need to talk about it in your onboarding. And I think I think that's where all of this is headed. I'm curious, Lauren, how you see how you see it. No, I agree. And I think like it's really interesting to me how often over the years I've seen companies sort of approach diversity like, well, anybody can just do this, right? Like we're just gonna like bring in some more people and we're just gonna do it, but nobody actually knows how. And, you know, I don't think that works. Like, there's no other function. And by the way, this happens with HR, too. I know many of us have seen, like, in organizations where suddenly some, an executive that actually has no HR experience suddenly gets appointed to the head of HR. It's like, they can figure it out. It'll be fine. You know, like, these are real professions that actually, like, require real knowledge and expertise. And, you know, so I do think there's some things that, like, literally anyone can do. I mean, certainly it doesn't require an advanced degree or experience to say we're going to be really intentional about how we treat people, that we're going to be thoughtful about making sure we have a diverse pool, that we want to make sure that people are successful here, no matter who they are. But then it also really takes work. And part of why, you know, despite all of the efforts that have been made over the last, you know, 20 years, we've seen some improvements, right? We're now up to 10% women CEOs in the Fortune 500, but like, come on, still only 10%. Right. And we're maybe up to like 30 percent women on the executive teams. And I think boards are now closer to 30 percent. But these are like incremental improvements over a hugely long period of time. It's hard work. It's hard work. It's hard work. And I want to make sure that the people that get selected are qualified. You know, Lauren, we saw this. We talked about this after the Me Too movement. And so many women got placed in CEO jobs and then were fired a year later because they weren't actually ready to take the job. I want to figure out how we go a click deeper and we help prepare women and minorities and people of color to take on the top job. Like, what do you see as ways that we can do that to help prepare people for the roles when they become available? Because you almost have to be in it and ready before your number is called so you can take that seat and then crush it. That's what I really want to help other people do. 
Yeah. And look, I mean, I think there's also been some double standards, like to be fair, higher bar for women. And I also think they get less support from their boards. And like there's often this like, you know, you have to look at the circumstances where women sometimes get these EO jobs. You know, we often we talk about, um, you know, the glass cliff. It's like women get put it. They get these opportunities when literally it's like the company is burning and like it couldn't get worse. And like, the sky is falling and they're like, oh, here, the woman's going to fix it. I mean, I I think about that with Linda Yaccarino right now, like the CEO. Totally. Of, it, like, you know, she gets this super high profile CEO job, you know, for a company that's like coming apart at the seams. Right. So you could say, all right, well, she has no place to go but up. But you could also say she was given an absolutely impossible task, you know, which, you know, you say what you will about how she's doing. I mean, I think it's a really, really tough job. So so there's a lot going on. So I do think that obviously we need to make sure women are prepared, but we also need to support people when they get these opportunities. And I think I see this in so many industries, which is like, like in a like in financial services, like the goal is to make it M- MD in the law, it's to become partner. You know, you look in these different industries where like there's like a cliff or partner in a consulting firm or any of these things. There's some job level, which is like the holy grail. Once you get there, like you're good. You're, you know, you're making the big bucks. You've kind of, that's your top tier. But what you see over and over again is there's all this focus on getting women prepared for those jobs, but like zero focus on helping them once they get them, once they get that job. And I've seen this, I'm telling you, I mean, this is why you see this in a lot of the big consulting firms that they're, you know, McKinsey, BCG, you pick one. They all have, you know, they can't seem to keep the women partners. And where those senior jobs are rainmaking, which they so often are, you know, they're relying on development. Like if you're not helping people, you know, and making sure those women can be successful once they get those promotions, like they won't be, you know, and that actually takes, you know, men do mostly support each other. Like it's not always obvious, but like they do, they like have each other's backs, like constantly telling each other and like, and it's easier because there is still a double standard. It is not a level playing field. It's kind of like, um, it's kind of like the script for a movie. Like you have women that will only do certain scripts. And I would want to tell like Linda, for your example, like no woman should take a turnaround in their first CEO job. Like you should take one that you can knock out of the park. Like let's be helping them on which jobs they take is the first. And then what is the board of directors that's around her to support her and make sure that she can knock it out of the park. You're right. We don't spend enough time doing that. I think that's another great action item is you, if you put somebody in for their first time, what are you doing to support and make sure that they stay and win? And look, this is like, I mean, I for sure see this for women. It's absolutely true also for people of color. And I think like we really do a better job in most companies of really thinking about so that they need special support. I mean, they're, they wouldn't be in those jobs if they weren't qualified. But I think it's more just that like the climate can be more difficult if you're the only, I mean, I don't know how many people on this chat have like had those experiences of being the only fill in the blank uh, in the room, right? The yeah. only. Like you're inevitably hypersensitive about everything that happens around you. Like if you're a woman who's been the only woman at a boardroom table, like you feel hyper scrutinized. And if somebody cuts you off and talks over you, you're much more likely to take that personally because there's no one else in the room who's anything like you. And I think that's really we really have to think about that for our colleagues of color that, you know, when you stand out in that way and there's so few of the others, like it's really it is harder And we have to go above and beyond to make sure that our underrepresented colleagues, whatever that underrepresentation is, 
is getting like the full support. And, you know, people ask me all the time. You didn't ask me this need about all like put this question. People have asked me for years, like, what is the thing? What's the special sauce that like makes companies good at or not? Right. Like I always get asked, about, like, who's good at it? Give me some names. What do they do? And like, there's not one answer. However, the best answer that I can give you is that I do think that companies that have a big focus on sort of leadership quality, you know, the ma- management quality where leaders and managers are held accountable, not just for their own success, but for the success of their people, that yeah. those are where diverse talent can thrive. And it's because good management is good management right? Like when you're a good manager and you are interested in the success of your team and you're invested in how other people are doing and you want to know what their aspirations are and you want to support their growth, like those are things that benefit everyone, but they especially benefit underrepresented folks who tend to get that less. So, you know, I think the the focus on management, you know, and I do a lot of that in my diversity work, it's like, it's not just like who you're hiring, it's it's how people are being treated how managers are managing their teams. You people, we always say people join a company, they leave their manager, right? So Lauren, how are companies assessing the progress of their DEI strategies? Like, what does that progress look like? I know you've been kind of diving deep into this DEI conversation. So what does that progress look like then for these companies? Yeah, I mean, look, like obviously the easy thing to track is just representation at key levels. And I think a lot of companies do that. I actually think that's overly simplistic. And I think what you really should be looking at, in addition to just the numbers of X's and Y's and X and Y's seats, is really about how people feel. And, you know, whether you're a large or small institution, I think having a good handle on engagement, on how people feel, whether they feel they can be successful in their careers at the company, whether they believe it's a meritocracy. I mean, obviously, if you're like three or four people, you're not going to do a survey. But, um, and you don't necessarily need to like, be, you know, doing a, a chart on how many people you have, you know who you have. But um, I think for bigger organizations, you know, that focus on how people feel, whether they believe they can succeed, whether they feel that they can fulfill their hopes and dreams and their aspirations in that company, all of those things are really just as important as the numbers of people from different backgrounds and different jobs. Because ultimately, as we've been talking about this whole hour, you know, those things about how people feel and whether they feel that they are included and valued, you know, is a huge factor in whether or not they're going to stay at the company and whether or not they're going to thrive. Anita, what do you think? Yeah, I totally agree. I'm I'm not a big fan on any measures that are checking the box. Like, that's why I'm not a big fan of, of representation like Lauren talked about. I'm a big fan of like, do I feel I belong? Do I get that invite to sit at the cafeteria table? Um, am I appreciated for my point of view, even though it might be different or abstract to what the group is talking about? Do I feel like I get to voice my concerns and thoughts and feelings without having somebody talk over me or or discount my opinions on things? Um, and you can serving for all of these things, right? I feel like I belong. I feel like I have a voice. I feel like somebody listens to me, even though they may not agree with me. I feel like they ask for my perspective, although it might be different. I mean, that's the whole premise of why diversity is important is because you want the differing perspectives. So this is where like me, I love diversity, but it means nothing if you can't keep and retain and include the diverse sound that you have. And so I think both are equally important to me to keep both. 
And if you get them into the cafeteria and you don't have them sit at the lunch table and you don't share your, you know, your chocolate cake um, or find out what kind of dessert they prefer, pumpkin pie or ice cream, then that's, that doesn't feel good. And so I want to measure all of those things and use that from a place where we can look at, Vanessa, this is how belonging impacts your team more. And this is how it impacts your team. These are the things that you could do to be a more inclusive leader. You know, I mean, Vanessa, you and I are talking about this right now with the team event coming up and inclusivity between remote and in-office teams, right? That's a big topic. And how do you do that effectively? So I think there's a lot of things that you can measure. I don't think it's science, but it just putting it into a survey and consistently doing it over time and using that data as a way to tell the story, especially for a leadership that may not buy in. That's neat. I love that. And I and I love the this uh, this cafeteria analogy that we keep using because it's making me hungry first of all, and I love the background noise of Lauren's uh, atmosphere because it's like making it seem like we're we're just adding in the sound effects to make it all seem even more real for the audience. You know, that <laughs> I forgot. I forgot to use. It's actually good. No, it's perfect, Lauren. Right. <laughs> Oh. All right, well, let's move on to our next section, how to improve hiring and promotion practices. Lauren, what advice would you give our listeners who are trying to improve their hiring and promotion practices? We started to talk about some of it, right, which is that, you know, especially in, you really have to do a little work to figure out where the biggest challenges are. And, and that, as Anita was saying, like some of that is geographic. You know, some of that is industry, right? I mean, we know that there are industries like engineering and computer science that are, you know, short on women. Um, we know that in certain markets, like Anina was talking about Utah, and I spent a lot of time working with her, in, you know, in, in the Utah context. And like, it happens to be a place that's, you know, has a less diverse population than other places. Um, I think it's also really hard these days to get people to move. I think the days of relocating for a job are O-V-E-R. Unless you're somewhere like, I don't know, like by the beach in San Diego. And like, even then, I'm not sure you're getting anyone to move for your, for the job. I think it's so unusual now that people will do that. They'll move to live somewhere that they want to live if you'll let them work remotely. But they're not packing up their whole family and changing their kids' schools and all the rest of it because you want them in an office somewhere. But that's also, you know, I really think it presents a massive opportunity for most companies to diversify their workforce by like really thinking outside the box. And, you know, unless you are in like a physical kind of customer service job, you're like, you know, you're a receptionist at a medical facility. I mean, we all know the jobs that like you absolutely have to physically be there. But there are a whole lot of them that you still that you really don't. And I think it's the gift of COVID if we choose to embrace it. You know, I certainly have experienced that with my team. You know, we like diversity is just incredibly important for us. It's like a total non-negotiable. And we but, you know, even for jobs that you know, lots of diverse people like opening it up geographically has been a game changer for us, you know, because we're in New York, like being willing to hire people in D.C., I will say it's also sometimes cost effective because you don't have to necessarily pay the same kinds of salaries, especially for junior jobs. By the way, like I live in New York, which is like the most expensive, one of the most expensive markets in the country, like San Francisco. Like 
junior people can't afford to live in those places. You know, if you're making $45,000, $50,000 a year, like it's really, really tough to live in a big city. So like you want a great kid that's like recently graduated from a, you know, a, a good school and they're going to give you their all, but like they don't want to live in a place where they're going to be struggling. Like, I think that's an opportunity on the diversity front. So, you know, I just think we need to be challenging some, continue challenging some conventional wisdom, you know, about where people need to be and who they need to be. And, um, you know, I think that opens up a lot, but it, it's all about being proactive and creative and understanding what you have to deal with, right? You you cannot change the status quo if you don't actually try. Like you will wind up, it will always be easier to hire white men because it is just, the it is remains the majority of the workforce, just the law of large numbers, right? And so if you're trying to find qualified women, you want to find under other underrepresented folks, because by the way, it's fundamental to having diverse thinking on your teams and getting better outcomes, you know, and you need those things. You got to you got to open the aperture. Well, those are some really good points, Lauren. And I think for a lot of folks in HR, uh, a lot of if sometimes we hear a lot of the pushback of we want to hire quickly mentality which could be very difficult for diversity hiring. And Anita, what do you think? What, what advice would you give our audience about improving hiring and promotion practices? Yeah, I mean, I agree with Warren has outlined here. And I really think you've got to be proactive and intentional about it. You know, I've said to another company that I was advising, like, hey, if you just want to hire white men, go out and say we hire white men. But don't talk about wanting a diverse workforce and then go and like tap people on the shoulder from your network and bring them in. Like, let's just be authentic. And that back to the no judgment piece. I really have no judgment if that's your strategy. Let's just call it. Like you can hire, train and recruit for it. And you can have those, or like you could say, I don't want diverse perspectives around the table. It may not be popular, but you're being authentic. You're being true, right? And I think it's important for people to do what they say they're going to do and be authentic about it. And if you are going to open the aperture, I love that view of it, Lauren, then let's go out and really open that aperture. More than I in another life, we work to create a relationship with Howard University, not unlike many other companies that wanted to do it. This is a long-term game. It takes years to build that relationship, to have and be part of their internship availability and to build a relationship that you really care about city more than just numbers and checking a yeah. box. And I think that's part of it too, is that you can say it matters, but you have to match that with action. I mean, at the time we were looking at partnering with universities and bringing those students here for internships, but also an extended university program where they could get credit that would go back to Howard. I mean, you have to make it almost a, a bigger, like this is why Lauren's so good, a bigger political state by state partnership and movement if that's what you want to do for your state and use influence in different ways to do that. Lauren, Ada, you want and to look, I mean, there's, no, I was just going to say, and like all of that is true. And also there's some lower hanging fruit, which is, you know, like these days, you know, we don't often think about community colleges and, you know, um, city and state colleges as the kind of, you know, I mean, obviously we have very diverse companies on this call, but, you know, historically when we think of like who's hiring the best, you know, we're so quick to say, oh, we're going to go to like the big name schools. Well, the reality is, is that because of the cost of college, you know, there are just huge numbers, super talented, actually really hungry and ambitious kids 
that are at, and a lot of them are diverse and first generation, that are at community colleges, that are at two-year programs, that are at, you know, state state institutions where they, because it's affordable and it's accessible. And I got to tell you, like, I've hired kids out of, like, the City University of New York, which is, like, not viewed as a great school. I mean, I, so hardworking, so driven, like, so committed, you know, and I think we we have to, like, sometimes set aside even, like, our own biases in this process, right? Which is, like, when someone says, I really want top talent, well, like, what does that really mean? Like, that can mean a lot of things. I I mean, I not no offense to our friends at Harvard, but, like, I would take a first-generation like hardworking kid that got a full scholarship to like a community college or some kid that went to like Andover and Harvard in a minute, in a minute, because the kid from the community college who's first generation, who like had to really work hard to get through, like they care in a different way. So, you know, there's a lot of ways to think about diversity that, you know, some of it's obviously about race and gender, but also some of it's like, you know, first generation, non-native speakers, um, you know, we also we didn't even talk about now, like a lot more focus on things like neurodiversity, you know, hiring mm-hmm. folks that are, you know, on the spectrum or that have, you know, ADHD or other challenges like and then the veteran community. And like there's just there's so many ways to think about it. At the end of the day, what are we trying to do? Like we're trying to create strong institutions, strong organization. Mm-hmm with lots of great perspective that help us make better decisions, challenge our thinking, and, um, you know, reflect the world around us. You know, that's really what it all is. <laughs> well, I think one, one really important thing that you had brought up earlier in the conversation, Anita, is that it could be very easy for sometimes leaders to go and tap the shoulder of one of their friends and say, hey, like, I know this person, like, let's bring them over um, but we're not opening up and tapping into, you know, more diverse networks and opening up that diverse pool to really bring in more of that diverse talent that we might be seeking um, to really grow and in in those various ways that we'd like. So what, you know, what advice would you give HR folks that are running into that that might need to help influence or educate those leaders to really open up? Uh, the talent pools instead of just shoulder tapping. It's the hardest thing, right? I mean, it is. There's not like a formula for that or we'd all be doing it. Totally. But that's where like Lauren has said really well, like go back to the strategy. What do you want to do? If you don't care about diversity, then let's talk about that and we'll build hiring practices around it. If you do care about it, then let's build hiring practices around that. But it goes back to Lauren's original point about being proactive. And if you don't have that proactive strategy to draw from, then it just shows up as like, so-and-so is always harping on blah, 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 blah. And it seems like somebody's, you know, pet rock or pet project. And that's where if it's cared about to the organization and the mission supports it, it's much easier to influence from that angle than like I, Anita, or you, Vanessa, or you, Lauren, think it's important and we're pushing our own personal agenda. And that's where I think a lot of HR professionals get off track is it seems personal and it seems judgmental. And that's where it's really hard for us to take a step back and present data and present a case for a strategy of how it'll impact the customer, the product, service, whatever it is that you're delivering. And that is the case for its importance, not your own personal case. 
There's a lot more evidence than there was that um, hybrid work actually brings more productivity and more profitability for the company. But there's more data coming on that. There was a big article about it. So those of you who are like duking it out with your managers. But like at the end of the day, it's like, you know, people are voting with their feet these days. Like you can argue about it till you're blue in the face. There are folks who are just not going to show up and they just won't because it's world has changed and jobs have changed. And a lot of young people don't see the, they, they just have a completely different template. And I think actually for a lot of women, hybrid work has been amazing. It's actually been amazing for a lot of men who like never felt that they had permission to be home with their families or to like have their own lives. Like, so there's really good reasons. And somebody asked, where's the article? I, I'm almost sure there was a New York Times. Oh, someone just posted it. Amazing. There, there has been, there is new um, research that is showing um, that is showing the profitability of companies that allow hybrid work or remote work is higher. I'll try to find it and send it around. But um, so, but that data is growing and it's out there. And at the end of the day, like if you can't get people to come to your office because they don't want to, like you can debate it in all day long and you're just going to have jobs sitting up in because they're not going to come. Right. And, um, and it's also very hard to argue with like how often we wind up forcing people to come to the office and they're sitting on Zoom meetings all day long. And that it's really frustrating because your clients don't even want to have in-person meetings half the time. So, you know, things have changed. The world is catching up. I think there are definitely some, you know, sort of older school folks who kind of don't, you know, can't can't fully accept it. But, you know, it's an opportunity. It, it really is an opportunity for a lot of us just to have a, a different kind of um, culture and a different, uh, you know, a more diverse workforce. Mm-hmm. Yes. Well, I want to jump into just our last section here and talk about policies and procedures to wrap us up. I want to talk through how our audience can work on training programs and also create more inclusive policies and procedures. Anita, I'd love to start with you. What is your advice on the DEI programs that work the best? You know, I think if you're starting from scratch, there's a few things that are just good baselines for everyone to know. Like one of the first things that Lauren talked with our team about was just unconscious bias and to understand how we're all born with it. And this is just something that we have that we grow up with from how our parents have viewed life and we view life that way. And because of that, you might be engaging in microaggressions and different communication styles that just aren't as effective. And again, I don't think anybody does these things to not be inclusive or not be thoughtful, but I've been experiencing this over and over again, and we've made a lot of progress since 2020. But depending on where you grew up, you may just not have a foundation for that. And now it is a leadership competency that I think we have to start giving our people to be successful. And I think new team members joining this team in this earlier generation are going to expect it, right? We just don't want to focus on tolerating differences. We want to help team members and leaders embrace diverse perspectives thoughtfully and authentically. So I think, you know, a way that you can do that is put trainings together and then put in measurable goals and metrics, kind of like what we talked about earlier, is like, now that my leader is done as training, I feel like my leader is more inclusive to my thoughts. I feel like my leader is more aware of how their language can impact a large group of people. Lauren, uh, do you have any advice on any training programs? 
Yeah, I mean, look, I as I said, like, I think, you know, if you're lucky enough to have the resources in the size organization to do more like specific DEI and unconscious bias training and that kind of work, I think it's valuable. But I mean, I think everyone, there's benefit to everyone in focusing on good management and good inclusive management, which is, again, like a redundancy. Good management is inclusive management. Inclusive management is good management, right? Those things go together. And so I, you know, if it was me and I it was that of HR and I had to prioritize my budget, I would really start with that because I think it's so key to everything and it's so fundamental to the functioning of an organization. I spend a lot of my time doing those trainings. I really like doing them. And um, and they're very rewarding because you, you know, when you focus on how people in a very tactical and tangible way can support their their teams and make them successful. It's good for innovation. It's good for growth. It's good mm-hmm. for retention for all of those things. So, um, you know, and then I also just think like we all have to think of ourselves as lifelong learners. And, you know, it's it's hard to it's hard sometimes to connect with people and really understand others' perspectives across lines of difference. But, you know, that's something we all have to do and challenge ourselves. And, you know, if we're going to be leading on these things, we also have to be challenging ourselves on them and learning all the time. So, you know, lots of great stuff to read, even if you don't have a, even if you don't have a training, like you could, you know, take an HBR article once a month or Slack and ask people to think about it and comment on it and challenge themselves. And, you know, so I think from the small to the significant, you know, every organization, no matter their size, you know, can help support your people and your colleagues in um, in making a difference. Well, let's uh, wrap up with one last uh, question about creating more inclusive policies and procedures. What can HR leaders do if they're starting from scratch or looking at reassessing what they already have? Anita? Yeah, I mean, go look at your simple ones that we all have. Like, have you reviewed parental leave lately? Have you reviewed your disability accommodations? Have you looked at your code of conduct? You know, Lauren gave us great tips. What what does your policy say around hatred and respect? I would start with that around bullying, discrimination, and make sure they're really outlined. And then when people come on, you make it a part of your onboarding. Like, this isn't just a policy you sign. We are serious about this, and we will not tolerate it. Um, you know, I've, I've worked and advised companies that have had team members start up different Slack channels that are in conflict to kind of the values. And that's where you've got to go in with the leader, have a conversation with that team member. It's not an HR says, it's the leader having a conversation saying, these are our values. And this Slack channel, does that work in the context of our values? And then they can work on that from that point. And that can be a great way to go about it. Any final advice and comments from you, Lauren? I agree all in. I totally agree. And, um, you know, I think on the policies, there's lots of good resources. Um, But I agree with Anita, like, it's more important than the policy. It's consistently applying it and making sure that it is, um, that people really understand that it's serious, that there's, you don't make exceptions, that they matter, they're critical for everyone. And, um, you know, that you mean what you say and you do what you mean as as an organization. Um, super important. And you guys are so lucky in this community that you have each other to turn to and work with and engage with to um, to get it right. And, you know, that's, I think, one of the best things that HR leaders can do is just reach out for help. And nobody has all the answers. And, um, you know, good intentions go a long way. 
Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Lauren. Thank you, Anita and Lauren, both for your uh, awesome and insightful discussion today. Anita, can you close us out with our three takeaways in uh, closing? You know, the first is everyone needs a DEI strategy. That way you can go through and you can influence your leaders, which is what you said your number one challenge was. Your DEI progress is determined by your strategy and it's different for everyone. There's not a one size fits all here. It's a homebrew. So go in and apply it to your mission and figure out what works best for your organization and be proactive around it. Be proactive in your recruiting, be proactive in your retention and how that ties in to your inclusivity and how it improves diversity at the top of the funnel. Thanks for joining us. Thank you again to our special guest, Lauren Leader. Please subscribe to HR Unplugged and give us some feedback. Thank you so much again, Vanessa. Amazing to be here with you. Lauren, thank you. Happy holidays to all. Have a super day. Thank you. Thanks for joining us for HR Unplugged. This series is brought to you by Bambi HR. Visit us at bambihr.com slash HR unplugged for video versions of the podcast, additional resources, and to learn more about how Bambi HR sets people free to do great work. 